Welcome to You Are Not Broken, the only podcast that combines science, medicine, and psychology to re-educate your brain and help you live your best love life. And I'm your host, board-certified female urologist, Dr. Kasperson. Ladies, thank you so much for joining me today. Today I have a life coach and podcaster, Danielle Savory, creator of the podcast, It's My Pleasure. You can get that on any place you listen to podcasts. If you're listening to mine, you can find hers on the same platform. She's a sex coach for women ready for more, and she's a master certified life coach. You can find her on the web at daniellesavory.com and on Instagram at Coaching. She does individual and group coaching, and you can check out her course, Better Sex in 90 Days, on her website. I'm so glad you're here. Yay. Yay. Awesome. Also, I wanted to say I changed my Instagram. So oh, it's you actually, changed your Instagram. yeah, it's at the sex coach for women. Even easier. Awesome. Yeah. Even easier. I love it. Okay. So how did you get here? How'd you tell me the, how you got into life coaching and then the niche of sex coaching? Oh, geez. <laughs> it's it's like one of those stories where you're just like, wait, how did I end up here? But then you look and you're like, oh, it all makes so much sense. So, you know, I know you're being a physician and probably a lot of the women listening, high achieving women, I went out, I wanted to be a brain surgeon. So I started with like the neuroscience and the background. And then I flew to England. I lived there for a while and I did this whole program in neuroscience. And while I was there, I was like, I actually am not going to be a doctor. And I just kind of like dropped everything. And because uh, I realized so much of why I wanted to be a doctor was for reasons that weren't for me. And, and it was this like aha and this huge realization. And then I just kind of fell completely apart as you do when you let go of this identity that you've been associated with for so many years. And so I kind of dissolved and I was like, I know I want to help people. I love science and I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. And it just ended up actually being a very dark period for me. I was also dealing with some body stuff and some chronic pain and the type of things where they're like, oh, it might be lupus. It might be MS. It might be fibromyalgia. Like we just don't know. We just know you hurt. And so there was two years there that I was actually bedridden for most of the that full two years. And during that time, one of my friends was like, go to a yoga class. And I live in Portland, so it's pretty woo-woo, you know, and liberal and granola here. Like a lot of people, you know, this was before yoga like really exploded how it is now. And I was like, eh, I don't know. She's like, just go. So I went and I couldn't do anything because my body hurt so bad. But the instructor was like, it's fine just lay on your mat and just breathe. And in those moments of like just breathing, I all of a sudden had an awareness of this horrible inner critic a-hole that lived in my head that I had no idea was there before. And it was like, oh my gosh, like no wonder I hurt all of the time. (laughs) Like no wonder I'm struggling so much, you know, in life in general, like it just became so clear. And that's when I really started diving deeper into mindfulness practices and I had actually minored in Buddhist philosophy. So it's like I had the cognitive understanding of mindfulness and meditation, but I had never experienced it and put it into practice. And so through this, I found it and I started finding these were, this was before mindfulness also was a thing. And so I found, started finding like some obscure articles and books on mindfulness that spoke in my language because I love science. Like I love to, you know, understand from my analytical point of view, why this works, even though I felt the effects of it, I didn't, I couldn't have full faith yet. <laughs> I was like, tell me, tell me why this works. And so through that, like I started to find my own and I started to teach mindfulness and meditation in smaller women's circles. And when I was at one of my further trainings, I met this woman. She was like, oh, I'm a life coach. And I was considering therapy. And I was like, what's a life coach? And she told me, I was like, oh, that's what I'm supposed to be. And so, yeah, the rest is history. I became a life coach. And the reason I got into sex specifically was so much of what I had learned, even just with the mind body and the mindfulness practices, being somebody, what I like to call with a magic body that can flare up and have a lot of pain, being somebody that was having all these limitations in my life, I 
really wanted to connect with my husband. And we were also struggling to have a baby. There was all these things. And sex was like this thing that I I could see all of my blocks to. And so I used all of these mind-body practices that I had learned and meditation and mindfulness to be able to reconnect. And then once I got into coaching and understood mindset stuff, that all became so much clearer how it all put together. And the other reason that I love sex coaching for me is because it it's the one place that I have found where we can't pretend we've landed at a place with a new thought, let's say, or a new belief system or anything else because our body will not lie to us. And so if there's something that's creating shame or pressure, even even like if you think you've worked through it, it's going to show up in the bedroom. And so it's such a great place and such an opportunity when we're learning how to really truly tap into like this nourishing pleasure in our body, how, you know, we might think that we're over something, but the body's like, oh, no, 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 you're not. And you can tell because it doesn't feel like, you know, you want it to, it doesn't feel as good as it has the possibility of doing. And I would love doing that. And when I was working with women at that, that's one of the things that I was like, okay, well, let's, you know, give it a go. And it was such a great indicator. So, so many reasons that I'm here. And now here we are. That is so cool. I Yeah, I think to me, I mean, I got into being a physician, learning yeah. about the medical side of sex, learning about like yeah. the anatomy, the physiology, and then realizing, hold on, we need to be paying attention to the mind, yeah, the mind's role in this. And that's how I kind of came into it. And it's the same as you of like, I actually was a neuroscience undergrad. Yeah. Like love the whole neuroscience of it. And then when I was getting into life coaching, I'm like, does anybody else know that this is basically just Buddhism and Stoic philosophy, like repackaged? Yep. And people are yep. like, what? It is what? And I'm like, oh yeah, that's all this yeah. is. We've just, yeah. we've just labeled it something new and sexy, but this is like yeah. thousands of years old. This isn't like un- unchecked philosophy stuff. <laughs> no, not at all. And and I think that's why I just knew that it was it because I was already doing all of this stuff because of, you know, my Buddhist, you know, my own practice with Buddhism and meditation and mindfulness, also my training in it. And then like the neuroscience, I was just like, this is my entire identity, but it got to like line up in this totally different way, which was so fun. So fun. So I don't know if people hadn't made the connection yet. You and I both are trained from the same life coach school. So I'm actually kind of, not an LCS. You're not LCS? I thought you totally were no, LCS. Okay. No. Well, yeah. then, I, for some reason, I totally thought you were LCS. Doesn't mm-hmm. matter. We still nope. think about life coach the same way. Yes, so we, we do. Talk, we talk a lot about our thoughts and let's talk yeah. about desire in the fact that it could be, a, do you consider desire a circumstance, a thought, a feeling? How do you, how do you tie in desire to kind of the way we think about life coaching? Yeah. Well, I actually think it can go in either one of those lines, like looking at the model, you know, and it, and that's the cool thing when you're doing thought work and you're doing mindset work is we can put thoughts, we can put feelings, we can put all of these things in the circumstance line. The way that I've liked to kind of, um, you know, think about it is it really is like an eagerness, right? You know, like it is this wanting and it's different than motivation. And so when we start to think of these different kind of pockets leading up to sex, we've got motivation, which is our ability to want to take action. And then we have desire, which is actually our wanting to, right? Our eagerness for it. And that sometimes will go become a circumstance when you're like, I don't have desire, right? Like that's like the thing, then then it would become a circumstance because the way that you're thinking about the, you know, absence of desire is going to create a whole different thought and a whole different feeling. But when we're talking about really creating more desire, this is, I do believe like a feeling within the body. It is like a pulling towards, like you, it's a leaning in of your actual being towards, you know, towards self-pleasure, towards sensuality, towards sex with your partner. Awesome. I, I love that, that eagerness. Cause I, I see so many women, they, I, uh, this is how I ex- just explain it, but it's like, they're looking for desire out in the world. Like it's a lost kitten. And if they find the lost kitten or they find the person to give them the lost kitten, then they have it and they just carry it around. 
right? I think people like view desire that way. It's like something to be obtained and then you have it. Yeah. Versus thinking about desire as it's something you cultivate within you. Nobody can right. give it to you. you right. Nobody has that power. Yeah. You, you have all the power and you have to continue to to take care of it. Not it's not yes. just like I have it in my pocket. Here's my desire in my pocket. Isn't it nice? Yes, exactly. And and I I do love thinking of it as this thing that we do get to create. And you know, the way that you explain it, it's it's the same thing. It's like thinking that it's like Cupid's arrow, right? Like all of a sudden we're going to get shot with desire sort of thing and then we're going to just feel this burning in our loins and it is something that just happens to us. And I think that is the problem with so many women is they're sitting around, you know, chilling out watching like all of the holiday reruns on the Hallmark channel waiting. And they're like, Oh, I don't feel desire. Why isn't it hitting me? And it's like, cause that's actually not how it works. And, you know, also understanding that there are things that are like in our body or outside or things in our, with our partner or cycles or all these other things that can influence our desire, but they are not the whole picture. They are not like the creator and cultivator of desire itself. I love it. One of my theories that, cause I'm like, I just haven't read this anywhere. One of my theories is a lot of women, they don't have desire and they're actually just having really bad sex. Mm-hmm. And yeah. then, and they're like, uh, I don't need desire. And I'm like, but is it, is sex good when you're having it? And they're like, nope. And I'm yeah. like, well, you, especially when you come to, you know, having pain of like, of course, you're not going to have any desire. You have pain, but just yeah. pain aside, if you're just having sex for somebody else or you're having sex that isn't pleasurable to you, don't wonder where the desire went. Yeah. 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 That, and that's exactly, it's like one of the things that we focus on in my program. It's like, it's way easier to desire something and if you're enjoying it, right? So there's kind of two parts here. We're taking a look at like, what is helping us create the desire and the wanting, and then also focusing on the sex itself. And I see these as different containers. That's how I kind of explain it. Uh, what I'm working with clients, right? We want to create more enjoyment of the sex itself. And then also the thing leading to us because it is so much easier to want and to be eager for something that we actually enjoy or is satisfactory. And like you said, when there's pain, when there's discomfort, when there's, you know, obligation, when there's all these other things involved, it's really something, it's really hard to look forward to something like that. <laughs> it, it feels obligatory and uncomfortable and, or downright pain or shameful or all of the things it can feel for women. And, or if it's just another thing on your to-do list before right. you get to go to bed. Right. Yeah. yeah. I always describe it as melted ice cream. Like I love ice cream, but I won't eat melted ice cream. You yeah. know, you, you can never make me like melted ice cream because it's melted, right? You've got to, yes. you've got to have that thing be good. And then the desire can be created. Yes. Yes. Tell me about, I love, I, I saw a post about stop shooting all over our sex lives. Mm-hmm. Talk about the role of the word should when we have it in our thoughts and kind of what that does to our lives. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, how eager are we <laughs> Like going back to desire and eagerness, right? Like when you're like, you know what, it just, for some reason, I just had like a Grammy voice type thing in my head. Like, you know what, you should really call your mother. You know, it's like <laughs> this sort of like, oh, you really should. It's like, okay. And then you're showing up, but you're kind of dragging your feet along and it's coming from this place. Like if you say anything to yourself and you close your eyes right now and you're like you really should be better in bed. Like, how does that feel? And it's like you truly feel like closed in and heavy. You know, if you're thinking to yourself, like, oh, it's been a while, I really should have sex. And then you're having this follow-up thought, like, I should really want it more, which is like this judgment of yourself for not wanting it in the first place. First, you should do it. But the fact that you don't want to, that's also bad news. So there's like all of these shoulds and they layer on top of you. And what happens when we have the shoulds in the brain is it does create this feeling of pressure in the body. It does create this actually physiological response of, you know, tension, of clenching, of contraction. And contraction is the opposite of pleasure. So if we're talking about creating a container that pleasure can bubble up, a container for, you know, an invitation that we're sending out to desire, desire is going to be like, yep, not coming to that party. There's too much like blocks and tension and like clenching in that. 
that. And so when we should on our sex life in so many different ways, not just leading up to it, but then once we're having sex, there's so much shoulds. Like I should be going faster. This should be happening more. I should be enjoying this and I'm not. He shouldn't be doing that. That doesn't even feel good. He should do this and this would feel better or she or whoever your partner is, right? Like it's these things that are leading up to it that are happening during it and then happen after are all going to like taint the entire experience, your sexual like identity of being a turned on woman because it just turns you off. hundred percent. I think of any thought like that has should in it, it should just be a warning sign. Yeah. Right. Of like, that's probably not in the best interest. Let's tie that into no. self to self-compassion and how that plays a role in, in a woman's good sex life. Yeah, I think this is one of the most overlooked pieces of all of it. And it ties into mindset. It's just a, a special kind of area of it is the way that we're talking to ourselves. And, you know, compassion, especially for our experiences. So many women have shame around sex. And I don't just mean like the shame that society has put on us for being sexual beings or not being sexual beings or the shame that is associated with religion, but the shame of not being able to orgasm, the shame of not um, enjoying sex, the shame of not wanting sex, right? And then we notice it's there and we kind of understand that shame isn't a great thing, but then we shame ourselves for the shame. And so really, truly learning how to bring more awareness to the shoulds, the shame, the way that we're speaking to ourselves so that we can be on our own side. And and it, and a lot of people think it's just like, oh, I'm just talking kindly to myself. Maybe I'm letting myself off the hook if I do that. And it's when it comes to your sexuality, self-compassion is the most, one of the most, if not the most important parts, because the way that you speak to yourself in a loving and understanding way and in an inclusionary way into the human experience is going to create uh, you know, that it's going to allow you to access more of that parasympathetic nervous system. It's going to like bring more ease into your body when we are being judgmental, when we are being critical, when we are being like even like analytical and kind of grippy and graspy towards ourselves the response in the body is opposite of pleasure. And so that's why it's so important to take a look at how you're speaking to yourself, not just about sex, but all of the time. Because if you're thinking of your whole being and your body as this container to invite pleasure in, then when you're speaking unkindly to yourself in any way, it's going to show up in this container. And so, you know, learning the tone that you're observing yourself, learning the tone that you treat yourself when you're looking at yourself naked in the mirror, when you're, um, when you didn't have that great of sex, how are you speaking to yourself afterwards? You know, there's all of these moments that are opportunities for ourselves to really offer true understanding and love and kindness so that we can feel better in general, but it's also more motivating. You know, people are afraid like, oh, well, if I'm not hard on myself, I won't be motivated in life. And it's just, it's just BS. Yeah. It's not how it works. <laughs> I, I love challenging that thought because you're like, well, if you got this far being hard on yourself, think of how far you can get being loving to yourself. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I love that. I love the whole like, you know, parasympathetic, sympathetic, because I think mm -hmm. knowing where the pleasure and orgasm comes from, that parasympathetic nervous system, that relaxed state. And so we're, we live our lives sympathetically, you know, mm -hmm. kind of hyper excited all the time. And we're like, when people are early into exploring how to have better sex, they're like, yeah, 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 yeah. But I just want to enjoy sex and have an orgasm. And you're like, no, yeah. you're, that's still coming from this hyper kind of arousal, not in the sex way, but sympathetic yeah. nervous system of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just get to the good sex. Yeah. Like, no, you actually have to kind of get into that relaxed, open. What is the orgasm like? Mm -hmm. you know, and the orgasm likes just being very calm and being very present and mindful. Right. And yeah, the sympathetic exactly. people are like, yeah, yeah, just get to, just get to the good part. Though. Yeah. You're like, good luck. Right. Yeah. That's when we're like, like white knuckling our vibrator, like, come on. <laughs> you know? And it's it, like, yeah. it should be happening by now. Why is it happening? And then pretty soon your whole vulva is numb and you don't even know what's going on. And then exactly. you start judging yourself. And don't all shoot all over your vibrator. <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> yeah. I love it. So how do you think in your experience, how do people end up, how do they get into a sexless marriage? Nobody wants to end up there, but people end up there. Oh, I think there's so many different ways. You know, I think that, you know, trauma is a big thing and that's one of the things that's overlooked. And it's also something that shows up a lot later in life. So I think having really a lot of compassion around that, um, because I work with a lot of women that have backgrounds in, in trauma. And, you know, as we're working through this, they're like, yeah, but I don't get it. This wasn't showing up like when we first met or we were first whatever, right? And so they have this judgment, like, are you sure this was what it is? Because it didn't come up before. And understanding that, you know, trauma, especially unlooked at and resolved trauma and healing can have this cumulative effect in the body when we're really talking about like this tension in these blocks. And it can show up a lot later in life. So that's one of the reasons I think that isn't talked about a lot, that is very real. And it's um, one that I think is, is you know, a, a big one. And, um, you know, and I think that can be sometimes confusing, especially for the partner who's looking at this and was like, yeah, but it was great when we first met and understanding there's so much going on when we're first meeting our person with our attachment styles and everything else and creating safety in that way that it might not be showing up yet. So that's one thing. I think the other thing is just, it's like, um, you know, it's a habit. It's a, it becomes a habit. Uh, one of, you know, I have a couple podcast episodes, like when we should say no, and then stop saying no. So these two things, but we get into the habitual pattern of being like, nah, like I'm not really interested or no, you know, and this sometimes can happen if we're having something health-wise go on in our body and it might be a no right then, or perhaps, you know, you're on your period or you had a really hard day at work or the kids are crazy or after kids in general. And there's this huge gap before you can start having sex again, that the no just becomes like one little thing. It just kind of works itself in there. And then you say it again, and then you say it again, and perhaps your partner stops asking or you just continue to say no. And it becomes this almost knee-jerk reaction to an invitation to sex rather than pausing and really taking stock with what's going on and even giving your yourself a chance to say yes. So, you know, that's going on. We can also look at partner issues. I mean, there's so many different reasons why we go there, but I think really what it comes down to at the at the end when you're already there is it's not being talked about. It's not being addressed, right? It's not being um, communicated, even just honesty with yourself, but also an open conversation with your partner that this is something that we actually do want. And it might be scary and it might feel awkward and it might feel shameful, but is this something we want? And let's do something about it. Beautiful. Yeah. I think a, a recurring theme for me lately in this work is just communication with the partner mm -hmm. and how much that can really move things forward. Mm -hmm. I see this a lot, especially in like the high achieving successful women of like, I get satisfaction from my job. I get satisfaction from being a mom. I guess it's okay that I don't have satisfaction in the bedroom. Mm -hmm. And they kind of almost like justify that it's all right to not have yeah. an excellent sex life because they're enjoying so many other parts of their life. Yeah. What, any thoughts about that? Yeah. Well, first off, I'm saying, yeah, sure. It is all right. Right. Like that's the first thing is like giving ourselves permission to be all right. Like it is something that I, you know, I think at the beginning I was like, but why wouldn't you want it? Because <laughs> when you do get there, you're just like, but why wouldn't you, you know? And so I think, you know, for the high achieving woman, you know, and a lot of my clients are super smart and super successful in their lives and they're up here and they have all of that same thought. And, and when they start to understand the benefits of, you know, incorporating this part, like my whole thought behind it, I was like, this is part of you, whether or not you're paying attention to it, or you're doing something about it, it's part of you as a human being. And it's a huge part of our, you know, our ability as women to receive and to have pleasure and compassion and power. And like, there's all these other things involved in it. And when we don't incorporate it, we're leaving a huge part of our entire potential as a human being off. It, they don't get a seat at the table. So I don't want this ever somebody to hear and be like, oh, I should work on this part of my life. This is where we don't want the should. So I never would say like, you should and you have to, but when like, do, do you want to? Like, 
is this something that interests you? And for me, somebody that has been so dedicated to personal growth and continuously moving into my potential, to know that there's this whole piece that could offer so much, you know, uh, impacts, beneficial impacts from overall well-being to resilience, to compassion, to connection, to like pleasure, to presence, to all of these other things available. Why wouldn't I? Totally. Yeah. I love it. I love the way you're thinking about that. Talk about, go a little bit more into, you know, as women, especially the the high achieving ones or the multitaskers, mm-hmm. right? We're living in our head and how we need to help getting out of our head when it comes to sex and pleasure and orgasm. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> there's definitely a process. I mean, everybody here is like, get out of your head and into your body. I think my first webinar, like five years ago was like, get out of your head and into your vagina. And, you know, there is like a process, but really it's the noticing, you know? So if you let your sex and you let your pleasure be like your anchor, and then you notice when you go away. So for those of you who have ever meditated before, oftentimes we use like our breath as the, our anchor, right? So you're following your breath. It's like an in-breath and an out-breath. And you notice when your brain is thinking about your grocery list or thinking about this or thinking about all of these things, it's the same sort of understanding with sex. It's letting your pleasure, the sensation of like feeling good, be your anchor. And when your brain is thinking about, oh, am I ever going to orgasm or this is taking too long or whatever, coming back to that sensation and really learning how and practicing that skill of noticing when you're wandering and then just simply coming back. Love it. What's your opinion on scheduled sex? I am a hundred and thousand percent for it. <laughs> Everybody it. should schedule. And and I think one of my clients was so surprised. She was like, wait, you schedule? And I was like, yes. And she's like, you're a sex coach. And I was like, I know. There is so many benefits. I have like <laughs> multiple podcasts dedicated to this because I just think there's such this stigma around it, right? That the spontaneous sex, like we're making out and you throw me up on top of a dryer and I, you know, orgasm in two seconds, sort of like fantasy in right. our head. But when it comes to like, when we really in, in our busy lives, in our lives that are so full with all of the other things, this isn't going to usually happen, right? You you make time and you schedule it so that you can get your brain on board, so that you can have something to look forward to. So when we were talking about desire at the beginning of this episode, you have a chance to work on cultivating the desire so that sex feels better, right? Like there's so many other reasons to do it. I also think for women, there becomes this uh, moment where we feel kind of unsafe when our partner you know, and I use unsafe, not like we're actually feeling threatened, but the brain does feel threatened and we don't feel as comfortable if we're being asked for it. And then we're like, what are we going to say? And then you get lost, lost in this indecision part is really understanding that, that creating that safety is huge. And so when you and your partner have this idea of when sex is going to happen, you have more time to be flirty without being like, oh, great, he's going to get the wrong idea. Now we've been kissing for a little bit. He's going to want sex when you're not quite there, you know, so you can kind of get those juices going. You can get your brain on board and you can also allow the time in between to be flirty without when you're still working on uncoupling that thought that I should do this. When you're still working on that, you know, you're not going to be just because you're kissing. Oh, I absolutely like that. So people have very strong opinions on it. So I was like, I want to get yours because there was a time where people were like, no, don't do that, blah, blah. And I'm like, I don't know. I, I'm seeing a lot of benefits towards it. It takes a lot of pressure oh. off of people. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm all about reducing that pressure. Totally. <laughs> um, so I was talking to somebody, she was a, a physician in Canada who does a lot of sex, uh, just medicine. And she's like, we've been scheduling sex our whole lives. When you were a teenager, you're going to have a date on Friday. Yeah. That's when sex was going to happen. You scheduled yeah. sex. So yeah. why are we getting away from that? You know, yeah. and I'm like, and I'm like, wow, that's brilliant. And she's like, and when you're trying to get pregnant, you schedule sex. She's yeah. like, so why are we getting away from scheduling sex when it works so well when we were teenagers? Exactly. And I was like, that's exactly. a great perspective. Yes. Um, you said on your podcast that most one of the most common thoughts standing in the way of desire is thinking about sex as pleasure for someone other than yourself. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, I love that. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about how women get themselves into that trap. 
Oh, we don't. The patriarchy gets us in that trap. Exactly. <laughs> and I saw you, you, had, you had Kara Lowen style like, on your podcast and I'm like, yeah. <laughs> no, we don't at all. I mean, this, this is the patriarchy at work here. This is a system and the culture that we've been socialized in. And anytime we start to, you know, this is where the blame and the shame comes in. When we realize like this isn't our quote unquote fault. This isn't something by our doing but it is our responsibility to do something about it now. And so when you really understand that most, I mean, the way that we learn about sex is all from the male pleasure point of view, right? But we, you know, we as women have been objects of pleasure. Even so much of our pleasure has been being able to see the, you know, pleasure in the experience of seeing our partner or male partner in particular being pleasured by us, right? Like even that idea, like, oh, I can't wait to see you come or I can't wait to see you have an orgasm or I really want to get you off. Like this kind of talk, like that might sound nice from our guy. It might be very, you know, coming from a loving place that they want to make sure that we're taken care of. But in our minds, usually it's interpretive of like, oh, great. Now I have to have good sex. Now I have to orgasm because that's what he wants from right, me. Right. You know, so there's so many different layers of really believing it's from us. This is the reason it feels like a to-do. This is what the reason that it feels like obligatory. This is the reason we feel like we should. This is what the reason why we feel like we guilty, we're guilty if we don't is because we don't truly believe that it's for us. If it was truly for us, like think about going and getting a massage and like your masseuse calls up and is like, hey, you know, let's get you back in for the massage. Like you're not like, oh, like, great. I just have to do, you know, it's like, oh, like, yeah, of course I'm going to go for this. This is for me. And so when we start to see that this is actually beneficial for us, it's nourishing for us. It's not something that's expected, but something that we get to experience for us, everything changes. Yeah, I was, I don't know if I, I think I was reading some sex therapy textbook because I, as I am want to do on the, <laughs> for my, my pleasure reading, they were talking about the, actually the damage, I don't know if that's the right word, but the damage that women do by having sex that is unpleasurable, by having mm -hmm. sex that's just for somebody else, is they're setting up that neural pathway in their body that says touching my pelvis isn't actually pleasurable. Mm -hmm. And then they have to, you have to work on kind of resetting that no touch is for me and it's for pleasure because if you do it all the time and your head's not in it and you're just doing it as another task to be done, you're, you're telling your body that that's what it is. Yeah. And I, you know, I would be cautious, like, you know, sometimes in those textbooks, I think it's interesting for, because for the everyday woman thinking that we're again, doing this to ourselves and we've done damage is not the best place for us to even come from because mm -hmm. that immediately creates more shame. Mm -hmm. So it's more, I think, understanding like, of course I'm here. Of course I've, you know, like, like I've never been taught that it actually was supposed to feel good and pleasurable. I mean, even when you look at all of this stuff from like adolescence and, and young age, and when you really dive into the psychology of what we've been delivered as young women, it never talks about like even losing our virginity as a pleasurable thing. Like from the very outset, it is, it is expected of us that pain is going to be uncomfortable and it's going to hurt. So when we are going from this like very foundational belief that even the first time that it's going to hurt, then that is something that it, it doesn't feel that weird then to continue to have sex that's like me and not that good because we've never, there's not been enough representation or explanation or conversation that this can actually be pleasurable and what that might look like. Yeah, like we've almost normalized pain in that way. Yeah. Uh, you know, the other way that we teach people about sex is just fear-based, right? Like mm -hmm. it's to prevent pregnancy. That's our teaching. And then our other teaching yeah. is to prevent disease. Yeah. And not once do we teach men or women, you know, vagina owners or penis owners, how the female body works. Right. Yeah. We, we have, we're not set up for success. I love the thought of like, we're all expected to be experts in something nobody got any training on. Right. Right. Yeah. So how do we take responsibility for our own pleasure? Well, that is a loaded question. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, I think in, you know, in a lot of different ways, I think it's like, you know, I mean, the actual actions you can take, but I think the first step is just understanding, like deciding if this is something that you want, right? Don't let this be like a should, or I, you know, putting extra overwhelm, like, but if you do truly want to have better sex, if you do want to enjoy it, if you do want to desire it again, if you do want to feel pleasure, like the ownership of it is where it becomes really powerful. Because if we say that it has to be, you know, our partner or, you know, when our hormones are just right, or, you know, when my body is super healthy, like, or, you know, this far after having babies or the ifs or the whats or all of these things, like, I don't want to even just say just the partner, but it's like, I think the body is a huge one, you know, and that was a huge block for me too, is like waiting to be better, quote unquote, right? So when we don't put all of that there and we just remind ourselves like, hey, I'm wired for pleasure and this is totally possible for me and you do it in this loving way, it does get to be your responsibility in the most nourishing way. It's like, of course, I want to take care of myself in this way. And of course, I want to like light myself up in this way. And I think that that's when we really start to shift and understand that it's not like this obligation and, and, and it is a responsibility, but more it's like, it's my honor to be able to do this for myself and really working on that. Because when you do look at all these outside things, it feels out of control. And I have like a lot of high achieving women that I talk to, they're like, but I'm doing like, I'm making the money. I'm taking care of the kids. I'm taking care of the house. I'm doing all of this. And now it's my responsibility to figure out how to have better sex. Like this is nonsense, right? So for those of you listening that are thinking that I get that. And, and I'm just like, yeah, but do you really want to put your pleasure, like how you really feel, how good your sex is in, in the hands of anybody else. Like it's been in the hands of men and everybody else for our whole lives. Like take it back, not because it's one more thing for you to do, but because it's yours to be had. Oh, I love it. And I think it was, it was interesting, you know, being a, a doctor who prescribes medications that I've been involved in this work before the FDA came out with approved medications for hypoactive sexual desire disorder. And now there's medications. And I'm, I, it's a double-edged sword because it's like, thank goodness, because now we can start talking about it. Doctors should learn a little bit more about it. We have medications that have been researched. So it brings the conversation up of low desire. That's fantastic. But I worry that a woman's going to come in, ask for a prescription, thinking that the solution is in a pill or in an injection. It mm -hmm. doesn't work because she hasn't done all of this personal, you know, personal growth stuff. Yeah. And now she's even more broken because she's refractory to the medication. Exactly. And to me, that's my biggest fear about this whole, you know, call it medicalization of of sex. Like Viagra truly has done wonders when we decided that men have a, a cardiovascular blood flow problem and it's not all in their head, right? Mm -hmm. So Viagra kind of is one well-trodden path of medicalization of sex. But I really worry about a woman coming in thinking the answer's in a prescription it doesn't mm -hmm. work because she didn't do all this work. And I think that's that's why I got so called to learn about all this other stuff. Yeah. Is because now you're going to, now the pill didn't even work. And look at how much more broken you are because the pill didn't even work. And there's so much right. shame wrapped in that. Like I'm a medical failure now. Right. So that's my kind of big, my big worry about there are medications now for low desire, but they yeah. don't work in a silo. You know, no, you've no. Got and I think the other, other thing to remember is even if we're fixing our desire, this is why I talked, you know, previously about like our different containers, just because you fix your eagerness for sex doesn't mean it actually feels good and doesn't mean it's enjoyable, right? So we have like the motivation to get into action. We have the eagerness to want it. And then we have the sex itself. Like, and even if you look at somebody like a drug addict, right? Like they really want the drug. There's a lot of eagerness there, but they don't enjoy it anymore. There's not an enjoyment enjoyable experience with like once they, you know, have like taken the drug, it's not enjoyable. And so it's really, it's really, I think, important to remember just because we can, you know, put a pill in our body that's going to make us more open to the idea, that doesn't mean that it's going to make the sex better, yeah. especially if you haven't done all of the mental work behind it. I love it. Can you talk quick about how meditation can help sex lives? 
Yeah. So I feel like meditation is one of the best like practices to do to be able to increase our skill set to be able to enjoy sex more, you know, for a number of different reasons, like all the things that we're talking about here, your thoughts and your beliefs, that doesn't matter if you're not aware of the types of thoughts and beliefs that you have. So meditation, you know, brings about awareness, it kind of shows and like shines a light onto all of the sentences going on in your brain to begin with. So that's one of the benefits. The other thing that you're really working on during meditation is the skill of focus, and the skill of capturing your attention. And when you have the ability to be able to notice when your attention has wandered and then bring it back and place it exactly where you want, that is a skill that's necessary to be able to really truly enjoy sex. But then when you're even talking more about like expanding your pleasure potential is how I like to call it, getting into a multi-orgasmic state or anything like that. It's like, it's all mental. It's all being able to see where your mind is wandering and then keeping in the attention and where you're focusing your attention, being able to grow your attention there. So I think that meditation is just a very, I mean, it's a practice that benefits so many areas and this is just one more of them. I love it. Yeah, I think I love how we can think about sex as a skill, right? It's not mm-hmm. like, oh, we're bad, it, it's so it's bad. It's like, no, no, no it yeah. takes practice and it takes yeah, totally. you know, repetition and trial and error. And the whole like when your mind wanders, you're like, where did, did I let the cat in for the night? Yeah, And, and being mindful of, okay, I'm not back in my pelvis. I'm not with my partner. I'm not with my pleasure yeah. and being able to bring it back instead right. of saying, oh, my mind went off to where the cat was. That's it for tonight. You know, right. and the practice that, that you can actually create more success in that area. Totally. Totally. Love it. So let's talk about this, the paradox of long-term relationships, right? And so it's like this, how do you desire something that's familiar to you? Because I think a lot of women in long-term relationships, they're like, well, yeah, I used to like want sex or I used to have desire, but now I'm in this long-term relationship and I, I know the color of his underwear and I know what he, you know, where he is on Tuesdays. And like the paradox of a good long-term relationship might not actually be the best for desire and having to work on that. Yeah. Well, I think that's like one of the things is like, we know that part of the reason that desire exists is because the idea of novelty, like Esther Pearl talks a lot about this in her books, you know, mating and captivity. Um, But I think the thing that's important to remember is that we don't have to have like create a circumstance of newness to experience newness. And when we recognize that being in these long-term relationships is really about, you know, this, um, familiarity of the brain. And the reason that it's familiar with the brain is because the brain has is all concerned about efficiency. And so when it has seen something, it knows over and over and over, it sees it as not important, you know? And so it's not going to even be as present for the experience. And you've experienced this when you're like driving, you know, like to your kid's school or something like that. And you're like, oh, wait, all of a sudden I started driving to my kid's school. And I even realize that when I'm really trying to go to the grocery store or something, because we're just in this habitual neural pattern in our brain. And the brain wants to do that because it wants to be efficient. It wants to scan for threats. It wants to do all of the other things that it deems to be more important. So what we have to do, especially being in long-term relationships, is create you know, the type of conditions within our brain to help with novelty, to help with like seeing things with fresh eyes. And one of the things that I like to just keep in mind is like, you know, I noticed one of the things in my own personal practice before I started coaching, but when I just started using my mindfulness stuff with with my sex life was like the assumption that I knew exactly where things were going to go or how he was going to kiss me or how whatever, you know, like we don't even think when we're first starting dating, it's like, you're so present for that kiss because you don't really know where it's going to go. You're so like anticipatory of like, oh, his fingers are like on my collarbone. Like, I wonder if he's going to grab my boob. Like, you know, you just get like all kind of giddy and like fun because your mind is like anticipating what's next where we already assume we know where it's going to go. And it takes away all of that anticipation, which can help increase arousal. So when you start to just like approach your person again, as they are brand new, as they are fresh, then it does get to be new. You do get to have that feeling again. And I remember on my wedding day thinking like, oh great, this is like, 
like, I never am going to have a first kiss again, which is like such a defeating, not great thought to have on your wedding day, by the way. But um, like later, I was like, oh, wait, I get to have a first kiss every single time I kiss them because it's this is the first time in this moment. This is the first time like with these thoughts in our head and this stuff going on in our lives. Like when you really start to see that it is a first time every single time, it totally has the ability to shift everything. And so all of the stuff out there that really talks about like, you know, like you said, like this paradox and how it's like so hard. I'm just like, if you want it, it's so available to you and you don't have to like even spice things up um, or all of a sudden become like a kink master unless you want to be, then totally go for it to be able to experience this. I've been in a relationship with the same guy for 18 years, a monogamous relationship, and it's hotter now than it's ever been. Love it. Thank you for showing women what's possible. Yes. That's awesome. Yeah. And again, it's you're giving the women all the power. The power is yeah. within us. It is. It's in our brains that. and our bodies and we're wired for it. So yeah. let's use it. And in bringing in the neuroscience and that, you know, the power of gratitude, right? Mm-hmm. I have the opportunity to do mm-hmm. this again or to do this in a different way or to yeah. think about it differently. Yeah. Totally. So cool. Okay, I can't end a, a, a conversation with a life coach without talking about some of your common limiting beliefs that you see women have about sex. Limiting beliefs Please. run our life. Yeah, where do I begin? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, you're like okay, how much time Kelly. you have? Hold on, you're fi- you're ending the podcast with this. Perfect. I was like, let me get out my notebook from <laughs> all of my uh, hundreds one, two, of and thousands five. of hours of coaching these ladies. So. You know, I think really one of the biggies we already talked about, and it's that it's not for me, because this is kind of like a foundational belief that has like little, you know, spider baby limiting beliefs coming off of it, right? But this is kind of the mothership one, because so many things that like I should or I need to or I do or a good wife does, or I'm a tease if I don't, like all of those are really stemming if we helped that foundational belief that this is for us, help eliminate all of those little ones, right? So it's like really seeing where that line is in there. But, you know, I think the thing like, there's just very simple ones, like I'm too tired, I deserve to sleep, I deserve, um, I deserve a time on the couch, you know, there's a lot of that type of thoughts, like I'm deserving these kind of things, because of the effort of this, Um, a limiting belief of, you know, I take too long, I'm not really good at orgasming, Um, I don't like anything that's like, I don't like, I mean, all of these. Yeah, I'm not going to enjoy this. I'm not going to enjoy this. This isn't even going to be good. Okay, you might as well stick it in and get it over with because obviously this isn't doing anything for me. Right? Like all of these kind of thoughts are all creating blocks to your pleasure. 100%. Where would you like to see women be with sex like in 10 years? Do you have, do you have a vision for the world? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I honestly, it's like one of the questions I used to ask all my guests on my podcast is like, where do you think, like, how do you think the world would change if more women were pleasured? And I really like to think in 10 years, you know, number one, it's the way that we're educating our youth about sex um, and bringing pleasure in in general. You know, it's always... Um, not brought in, but it's specifically not brought in around female pleasure and learning how to have more just sex positivity in our education system at whatever age that is going to be, is going to give permission for women to actually explore this area of their life that they haven't. And, you know, in 10 years, I'm hoping that there's enough of these conversations out there. There's enough, you know, teaching and education and coaching going on that it's not a default to think that we're doing something wrong, that it's not the default to not feel deserving of pleasure or feeling like we have to actually earn it in some way, Um, you know, that it is for anybody but us, um, all of these things. And that's just going to have a ripple effect on generations to come. I love it. And I think for the moms out there who learn this, they can pass that down, you know, to their children because it can start Mm -hmm. in the home if if we think, well, it's not going very well out in the schools. (laughs) Yeah. How about if it starts in the home? And, you know, in my experience, being able to see, I see people from, you know, birth to death. 
And I think the stereotype is only older women have problems with this. Like, Mm -hmm. oh, well, the the younger generation, they're so modern now. They've got access to all of the internet. They don't have any problem with this. And I'm the first to tell you, like, there are, you know, 20-year-olds who have big problems with this. Oh, a lot. And one of the ones I've been seeing a lot lately is, uh, well, my boyfriend says I shouldn't need lube. Oh, Mm -hmm. my boyfriend wouldn't like it if I used lube. Yeah. And it's a very young age that this is starting. Yep. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. No, nobody should think that it's better now because we have yeah. access to the Internet or our schools are doing a better nope. job of like, uh, uh-uh. uh, we got to we got to mm. get to them earlier. Yep, And I think even especially more now because of the access to the Internet, uh, a lot of our boys and men are having more access to porn. And, you know, and I have, you know, we could have a whole conversation about that, but their access to porn and what they assume it's going to look like. Right. And and then they put their assumptions and their explanations onto their partner when in a lot of ways, if you look at, you know, um, the general generations of us that didn't grow up with the internet when we were teenagers and learning about our body, like the best thing we might've gotten was somebody's dad's penthouse magazine. And we saw titties, you know, it was like this kind of thing that like, it came from like this, like, Ooh, I don't know, an exploration of one another's body and curiosity rather than being told the way that good sex looks or doesn't look. And, um, so it's like, yeah, they they are they don't have as much of an advantage at all as we think they do. Hundred percent. Well, tell people where they can find you and the courses that you run. Oh yeah, so um, so I've been having a lot of fun with Instagram Reels lately. <laughs> So you can check out like on my Instagram, um, it's at the sex coach uh, for women is there. And then my website, danielsavory.com slash group. Um, The next cohort starts in February. So we're going to be getting, you can sign up now, but enrollment will officially get launched at the end of the month. And yeah, and that's a lifetime amazing course. And I've already got a whole amazing group of women signed up for it. So those are the best ways. Awesome. Thank you. So I literally, I could keep talking about all this, all the things next, but we'll (laughs) cut it short. We'll make a list for round two at some point. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's been really fun.